Gather round, one and all, and listen to tales of excitement and adventure. Tales of daring heroes, savage monsters, and bards who just couldn't keep it in their pants. Tales of friendship, nobility, drunken foolishness, and unforgettable fun. These are tales of role-playing games, fair listeners, and this is Rollin' Bones. My name is Ryan Howard, and I shall be your god. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Rollin' Bones with Ryan Howard, your source for the best in RPG interviews. I am your host, Dungeon Master and King of the Boneheads, who has his uh, camera slightly off to the side this (laughs) evening. And uh, today we are joined by one of the great mini painters out there, a guy who's got some great content out on YouTube and Twitch. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to Rollin' Bones, Mike from Epic Duck Studios. Mike, how you doing this evening? I'm doing great. Yourself? I'm doing pretty good, too. All right. Hey, I just need to mute your stream here because I'm hearing you twice. There we go. <laughs> <Gotcha>. <laughs> All right. Yeah, we had, back when I first started streaming, there was an entire stream where I was reviewing the old James Bond RPG from the 80s. Okay. And I was just like double audio the entire time. Oh no. It was terrible. We had to redo that one later. <laughs> yeah, that's uh the things that happen when you're streaming that you don't expect are <laughs> I had one a couple weeks ago I was doing a dual stream with another uh, another painter mm-hmm. and for some reason I went to start the show. And so normally I like to sync up and kinda of do what you do where we sync up, you know, fifteen minutes before the show and just make sure our audio levels are all good and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And it just happened that was the night that both my son and her son just refused to go to bed. (laughs) And we got together about one minute before the stream was supposed to start. And then I found out none of my audio devices were working because of a Windows update. Uh, So she could hear me no problem. So her viewers could hear me. But I had no sound on my stream whatsoever. So I just had a little message repeating in my chat just saying, pull up multistream.whatever and listen to her show, but watch my show. (laughs) Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, um, it worked. <laughs> gotcha. And yeah, then two well, minutes after the stream, it went crap. That's what it was. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Te- technology will always get you. I'll never forget. Uh, we did an entire interview. I used to do a show that was just about rock music before I started okay. this one. And my my co-host at the time and I, we did an entire interview with uh, the lead singer of a band called Them Evils. Uh, a okay. great guy named Jordan Griffin. And because of some kind of update that happened with the recording software that I was using at the time, we got none of it. Oh, that hurts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it was a whole thing. <laughs> he he was one of those guys that had just one of those like battle acts of a publicists. Right. And so we just had to go through that guy again. And oh, it was a nightmare. But tonight we are here, of course, to talk about the work that you do, and and there's a lot of stuff that you've done in your content that I have uh, 
try to bring into my painting as well. Okay. Just just to become a better painter. But we're going to start off the, the way that we start every single interview here on Rolling Bones. I ask these same questions to everyone. So I guess start at the beginning here. How did you get into tabletop gaming? So I got into it almost by accident. Um, I used to work for a company that was called Glenfield Marketing Solutions. And it was a small internet design company in a guy's basement. And the owner got really, really into Warhammer to the point where he decided to start a business on the side selling it. And that business is now Mini Wargaming, one of the, like, the biggest YouTube channels out there. And so what happened is he was basically shipping and receiving the stuff out of the office I happened to work in for his other business. And it just sort of like through osmosis, I was just seeing this stuff every single day. And I finally just kind of picked some up because it was just, it looked interesting and found out I could paint and it just kind of all went from there. Mm-hmm. So it was never something I set up. Actually, what's really, really funny is our local game store here in town. I used to buy hero clicks there all the time mm-hmm. and I would go in and I would look at the Warhammer stuff. And he had a display case full of unpainted metal orcs, and that was it. <laughs> and it was there for years, and so I'd always go in. I'd buy Hero Clicks or whatever else I was buying at the time, bought some board games and stuff from him. And he never once tried to sell me on Warhammer, or any RPG, really, um, or tabletop game. And what they had on display just was not of interest. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I could have been into this like a decade earlier, and it was a missed opportunity, I guess. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, all of you shop owners out there who are trying to get people to buy your your Warhammer stuff, there are talented people all over the country who who do great jobs painting. Commission one of them to paint some stuff to put in the display cases. You don't even need much. Yeah. You know, you don't need a full case. You just need a handful of pieces to look nice. Yeah. Yeah, just something to let people know this is what the finished product is supposed to look like or could look like. Yes. Anyway, that was, uh, yeah, so what happened then is Mini Wargaming just kept growing and growing, and the marketing business kept shrinking, so he finally just moved me over to be the full-time web designer for that business, and then out of that, I started Epic Duck Studios when there wasn't full-time work there anymore. Gotcha. gotcha. Yeah, just kind of, it all happened organically, and it was never a plan. <laughs> So of all the games that you've played out there, um, I'll actually kind of split this question into two because, you know, this is going to be a lot more tailored to the the painting side of things. Mm-hmm. What's your favorite game to play? And then what game do you think has the best minis? Um, probably going to actually be the same answer um, right now. So most of the games I like to play, I like to play the smaller scale, like skirmish games. Mm-hmm. So I'm playing a lot of um, Frostgrave, um, Marvel Crisis Protocol, Riot Quest, and anything basically you can get away with like 10 miles at a time because I really like to lose myself in the painting. Mm-hmm. And when you need to have, you know, 400 miles on the table, that's not really a viable option. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I've been playing, I've been focusing more on like the skirmish side of tabletop gaming. And those start to kind of bleed more into like RPG style games where like you play longer campaigns and your, you know, units get better skills throughout the gameplay and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so the two I'm really enjoying right now, I'm going to actually give you two answers and they're for both questions. The two games I'm both playing the most and love the models from the most have been Riot Quest from, um, Privateer Press and Relic Blade from Metal King Studio. Gotcha. And both of them play very, very quickly. Games are like Riot Quest games last 15 minutes and you play best of three. So you're, you know, you're getting a session out in about 45 minutes to an hour. Relic Blade's about the same. You know, an hour is a good... Like, basically, it's tiny little, like, mini scenarios in a campaign. 
And you only ever have five or six models on the table, so they go by pretty quickly. Um, and I like that now because I've got a two-year-old son at home, and so when I get gaming time in, I kind of like saturate it with games <laughs> as opposed to playing like one four-hour game. Yeah. So yeah. Find, finding that 45-minute game I can knock four or five out in an evening is kind of like, you know, that's money for me. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, but both of those... So the one thing I guess we'll get to this when we start talking about painting, though, is that I paint things with a very sort of like comic-heavy aesthetic. Mm-hmm where they're, they're all sort of like either comic book inspired or just kind of like goofier, kind of more overdone characters. And Riot Quest is literally the Saturday morning cartoon interpretation of the War Machine universe. Like that's actually their internal like Delvator pitch of it. So every character is just a little bit bigger, a little bit goofier, and it really takes to how I like to paint well. Mm-hmm. And Relic Blade is kind of much the same. The guy that both authors the game and does all the sculpting is actually a comic book artist by trade. And so like the flavor of comics comes through in his sculpts and it makes it really easy for me to then kind of carry that same flavor into my painting. So they're what I enjoy painting the most. And they have that sort of that really like overdone sort of comic-y feel to them that just, just works for me. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Now. And it helps the friend to play. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Now, Traditionally, what we talk about on this show is kind of the RPG stuff. And you mentioned you you did have a little bit of a background in RPGs. So going yeah. back to, to some of those days, do you remember who your first RPG character was or your first memorable RPG? Yeah, my first RPG character. So I started, this actually is related back to working with Mini Wargaming. Mm-hmm. My first RPG campaign was right around when D&D 4 came out. Gotcha. Um, so my first character was a dragonborn paladin named Gazira, mm-hmm. who around level 15 turned into a werewolf for a while. <laughs> <laughs> um, he was fun. So with him, um, in D&D 4, there's a lot of abilities that paladins and both dragonborns have that change the characteristics of how your character plays when they're bloodied, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I really played into that and kind of played him as like a Hulk sort of character where... He was, you know, this really nice pacifist sort of guy up until the point he got bloody. Then he was just raging lunatic that just was a dragon and scorched everything. Mm-hmm. Um, so I actually had two minis painted for him. I used two separate sets of dice for depending on whether he was bloody or not. And <laughs> then at one point I got a sword that allowed me to drop half my hit points. So I was bloodied, but then gained them back as temporary hit points. So he just like choose to enter the bloodied state whenever he felt like it. So just at that point, he just would go into bottom Hulk out and... He really wasn't a very good paladin at that point because, <laughs> you know, he's kind of being a little more um, feral, I guess. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> gotcha. But now- yeah, that was my, my first character. And then um, I basically, so we ended up with, during that campaign, he became a werewolf and then he became very, very embarrassed by the fact that he failed his god and, you know, succumb to lycanthropy and blah 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 so what happened is we canned that character for a couple sessions and i took over gming for about three rounds while the gm just played some random throwaway character mm-hmm. and then when he came back i actually just completely respect him because we decided that it fit into the idea of like he went away and studied as a monk and blah 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 blah, blah and you know sort of found inner peace and realized what he'd been doing wrong and so i lost that whole sort of bloody anger thing he had going on <laughs> gotcha Gotcha. Yeah. Now, the how, now, how often did you kind of uh, step behind the other side of the screen and, and uh, GM? 
Uh, only ever three games. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. GMing's not, I found out very quickly. I'm not great at improvisation. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. Kudos to those who can do it, but it is not in my skill set. Yeah. <laughs> And that's actually somewhat rare on this particular show because, you know, we talk to a lot of RPG designers and people who end up designing games typically end up being the forever GM. So it's yeah, it's cool to get the other side of, uh, you know, people who didn't necessarily take to GMing, but but love the playing side. I, I love the I love the idea of myself as a good GM, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but it just has not come out in practice. Um mm-hmm. Then again, it's also been probably six years since I've tried, so who knows? Gotcha. We'll see. Maybe after the pandemic's over, we'll try again. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so you've already kind of alluded to your uh, your your style when it comes to painting, but if you can uh, if you can go ahead and expound on what the the comic style of painting that you're kind of known for on your YouTube channel, if you can expound on on that side of things a little bit. Uh, just, yeah. Just go ahead. Yeah. So, um, this actually started. I fir- went to my first Adepticon actually back in 2018, and so I already knew a lot of people through Wargaming because I've been doing this YouTube channel for you know a decade or something to that effect, which is just bonkers. And um, so I met a lot of people who I knew online but didn't know in person. And one of those was Sean Sutter, the guy who designs Relic Blade. Mm-hmm. And like I said, the Relic Blade minis were always they're sculpted with this sort of like comic-y aesthetic in mind just because he's a comic book artist. But what's really cool about his packaging is when you get like the blister pack for a miniature, it doesn't have just a picture of a painted miniature on it. It has his hand-drawn artwork that the miniature was designed from and it's full color. It looks like a comic book. And so what happened is I got home from Adepticon that year and I just looked at this mini and be like, I want to paint it the way it looks on the box. You know, I want to paint it like it's this comic book thing. And I tried it once on my show and I love doing it. And my fans loved watching it and it kind of exploded a little bit. <laughs> and so then I just did another piece and another piece, and another piece. And then 10 pieces later, Depticon was asking me to come teach it the next year. Um, and that just sort of became the snowball thing where then monster apocalypse came out, which is a sort of like a Mecha versus Kaiju tabletop game from Privateer press. Mm-hmm. And it also has a very heavy comic book influence. I mean, actually, when the very first run of the game, they had a comic book that ran alongside of it. So I just kept doing it. You know, I just I was doing this comic style stuff for Relic Blade first, and then I started doing it for Monster Apocalypse. And then I just found some other random minis that kind of worked well with. I've done it now with, you know, Warhammer Shadespire. Um a couple random off pieces, like I've got an Ultramarine or a uh, Imperial Fist on my table. And then Riot Quest came out. And Riot Quest was just really where I just dove in. And I've done like 40 pieces for that game in this style down. It's just become mm-hmm. this thing that I love doing because I the, what I really love about the style is how well it reads on the table. You know, when, you, when you're doing sort of like, look at 40K, for example, and you're painting that sort of like that grim dark style where everything's everything's dirty and muddy and you know, maybe there's some highlights on it, but you know, you're highlighting blue with blue and then there's just, you know, there's mud and dirt everywhere. Right. And it's sort of it. What happens is once you're more than four or five feet away from the model, everything just kind of starts to become this like grayish brown blob, no matter what color it actually was, you just start to kind of lose the model in the, like the ambience of it. Mm -hmm. And comic style painting is kind of cool in that, 
you know, I focus on really bright, really saturated colors and then they're offset with a lot of black ink. And so it makes those little spots of color just even more dominant. And I can read my models, my read. I mean, like I can tell which direction they're facing, what they're equipped with and so on from like 20 feet away. Yeah. <laughs> and it makes it really, really cool because you can be at the store playing a game and like the guy three tables over can see what your models are doing. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it's just so it plays really well into the tabletop experience because it just sort of makes everything more vibrant and more visual and just a little bit easier to follow. I think even it, um, I think in a way it actually can improve. It's weird to talk about it, but I think painting in some ways can improve gameplay that way. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think if you've played any amount of um, tabletop gaming, there's a point where you forgot about a model because it just blended into the background of the table. Yeah. Um, And I haven't done that with this. So, (laughs) Yeah, so so all that to say, basically, you didn't set out to be the comic-style painting guy. You had the audience and the, the channel already, and then yeah. you kind of discovered that style, and, and then that's what yeah. you became known yeah. for. Yeah, that's really it. I mean, up until then, I'd always been sort of my focus prior to that, and still to a point, I'd say like maybe like a 30% of what I do now is I've always kind of focused on trying to help new people to the hobby enjoy their painting experience. So it's, you know, breaking down sort of more complex topics into like easier kind of progressions Um, and sort of like detailing recipes that, you know, simple ways you can achieve, you know, better results than maybe just throwing on flat colors. Mm -hmm. And that's always sort of been up until I started doing comic style. That was really my jam was just helping people do things a little bit better than they might do on their own and helping them enjoy their hobby. And then I just, like I say, I kind of discovered comic style on my own, sort of by accident, almost the same way I got into the hobby in the first place. Mm. <laughs> it's like I have no plans for anything. Um, yeah, hey, why not? And then, you know, I just found out I was really good at it. I was enjoying doing it more than just casual painting. And more than that, there was a lot of people who were really excited about it. Like, I've got a comic style painting group now on Facebook with, I think, 1,400 members. Gotcha. Yeah, it's um, it, it's grown to the point where there's people coming to the group now that have seen other people's work and don't even know about me. So it's, you know, <laughs> it's now like one or two levels bigger than I am. And mm-hmm. I that actually was really, really exciting because it means it's it's now gone from being watch Mike do this thing to there's like a community behind it. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, I have had some people sort of as of late, say, maybe I'm leaning too heavily into it. They'd like to see some more of my classic paintings, so I may try to seek a little bit more of that in just to kind of (laughs) balance the scales a bit. I think maybe I, you know, veered too far one way, but, you know, I'm enjoying it, so. Gotcha. Absolutely. I like what I'm painting. (laughs) Yeah. Now, this can be either a two-part question or an either-or question coming up here. Uh, Okay. You can give me either your fondest gaming memory or your fondest painting memory, or if you want both. Okay. Um, so this was a D and D 3.5 campaign. Mm-hmm. I'm actually, this is my favorite story. Um, this is the day where I could roll nothing but twenties. <laughs> <laughs> Always a good day. So I was playing a little halfling monk and I had one guy in our party who just, you get that guy that just wants to build 
like just insanely broken characters to game the system and the GM just for whatever reason allows it. Mm -hmm. So he was playing a goblin rogue that had two wear forms. So it could either transform into a snake or transform into a bear. And I don't know how he came about actually building this character because we're only like a level five campaign. It wasn't, yeah. so I don't know what, you know, unholy things he sacrificed to even allow this character to exist, but the GM okayed it. I didn't know enough about 3.5 to know if it was even legal or not. I don't really care. We had fun, right? Mm -hmm. um, so long story short, we're in this town. And of course, as every, you know, low level adventure starts, there's a death cult you have to investigate and stop. Um, because everyone starts with a death cult. Yeah. And we find there's this I forget if it was like a well or something, but basically we found this like giant hole in the ground. We had to climb down this hundred foot rope into a cavern under the town. And we roll for initiative to do the climb, and I happen to go first. And I roll a Nat 20. And I just say, Well, and my I always played the halfling monkey. It was kind of like a little think of like Aang from Avatar, he's like a little bit show-offish and a little bit childish, yep. you know? Mm -hmm. um, so he's so I basically said, okay, well, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to show off. I'm going to climb down the entire rope, like, one-handed. <laughs> and GM allows it, no problem. And then the druid, go, or not the druid, the, um, we did have a druid, too. That's a different story. Mm -hmm. um, you know, this rogue guy, mm -hmm. rogue goblin, takes his snake form, which gives him a climbing bonus, because snakes can just slither around things, and he throws a one. <laughs> and so the GM's like, you just start plummeting. You, you, you miss the rope roll. entirely and you just fall. And I just go, and I was next in the initiative order at that point. And I just go, I'm still climbing with one hand, right? He goes, yeah, sure. I'm like, can I snatch him out of midair? <laughs> and GM just goes, sure. You know what? It's going to be like a DC 18 grapple check, but I'll allow it. And I mean, I had grapple out the wazoo because I was a monk. So I grab him, no problem. So we get to the bottom and I guess I'm still holding the snake in my hand. Hmm. Didn't really think about it at this point. So we're walking around doing our thing. And then we get ambushed by bugbears. And I just turned to the GM like, am I still holding the snake? <laughs> he says, well, you never explicitly said you put him down. It's like, Dave, did he put you down? Dave's like, I guess he didn't. <laughs> I'm like, I'm going to throw the snake at them. <laughs> and then halfway through, he takes his bear form, and just crushes a guy to death. So I used a party member as a projectile, basically. <laughs> <laughs> nice now I mean there's some jankiness there obviously he probably you know turn order being what it is probably shouldn't be able to transform in the middle of one of my actions but mm -hmm. it made for a good story so yeah that's, you know yeah you gotta keep a little bit to make the good stories right yeah and as, lo as long as it didn't trample on anyone's fun or step yeah. on any toes there yeah it's perfectly fine it's I mean, it's a decade later and the five of us still tell that story. So, you know, I guess it worked. Absolutely. <laughs> so when it comes to, you know, sharing the table, we share the table with all kinds of great people. Um, and then we share the table with all kinds of people who we don't exactly click with. And the, the worst of these people, there's this term that we have for them. And that's that guy. So, uh, uh -huh. Mike, if you've got one that you're comfortable sharing on the air, what, what's your that guy story? I don't know that I have one. Um, most of my gaming's been done with a pretty close group of friends. Gotcha. The closest we had to a that guy, um, not someone I really personally game with, but he was always in and out of the store. Mm -hmm. And... 
just would always jump into everyone else's conversations with the most awkward comments that just would shut down conversations, right? Like, um, and ultimately it was because like, he was just a socially awkward person. It was just trying, like he was trying his best to kind of include himself in things and socialize and so on. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't from like a place of malice. Yeah. Um, but it just every once in a while you'd be you'd be chatting with some friends and he'd just jump in and say something. You'd be like, "Well, this is super awkward, and none of us know how to continue this conversation." And it just like it would happen like basically weekly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, other than that, I mean, yeah, he was a good enough person. Otherwise, like he was never there was never an ill intent to what he said. It was just a level of social awkwardness that you know was over and above. <laughs> mm. But yeah, no, I can't think of anyone that was like sort of like outwardly hostile or gamey or anything like that, or sort of like I said, the closest I came was like, you know, this goblin rogue who just built this just absolutely broken ass character that mm. you know ended up just falling apart and then he anyways, like three sessions later, put his hand into a trap and lost like eighteen hit points and couldn't transform out bear form because <laughs> he would have died instantly. <laughs> but that's another story. <laughs> it's like, yeah. Anyway. And then the last of these introductory <laughs> questions before we just deep dive into the painting stuff. If of you course, could put of course. Anything on a t shirt, and I do mean anything, as philosophical or sophomoric as it can be, what would it be? Oh, I've given this no thought. <laughs> um I really don't know how to answer that one. It it has flummoxed many people. If you want, we can circle back around at the end of the street. So I'll actually tell you, uh, I'm going to answer the reverse of that. I used to have a shirt on my store long time ago on my, like my merch store for my, for my, uh, my stream. Mm -hmm. And it was just like a little flaming skull. It was like sort of like a Jolly Roger with like paintbrushes behind it and around it in like, you know, in the like sort of an emblem style. So like I paint so I won't kill people. (laughs) And (laughs) in the last like two years, like, it feels really tacky now. Mm -hmm. Like there's just so much. And like, I don't want to, I'm not trying to be political here. I'm not taking the show in that direction, but like, there's just like so much crap in the world right now. Like I don't want like that kind of pseudo negativity to be associated with me anymore. Mm -hmm. So I just, I took it off the off the store like two years ago. I haven't worn my own copy of the shirt since then. Cause I'm just sort of like, it, it feels a little too not aggressive, but, just the wrong color now. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I gotcha. So kind of like the reverse of your answer is what shirt have I abandoned? Because <laughs> <laughs> So I guess I'm trying to find something that's the, you know, functionally the inverse of that. <laughs> gotcha. And yes, for, for those of you wondering out there, once I set up my own merch shop, I will in fact put the words anything on a t-shirt on a t-shirt. <laughs> and I'm hoping that a few of That's you classic. will buy it. There's a um, a webcomic I follow. It's actually a parenting webcomic because that's the kind of person I am now um, called Litterbox Comics. And the, sh- the dad in it just he wears a shirt that just says like outdated pop culture reference across it or something <laughs> like that. And they just have a shirt on their store that just says like pop culture reference. And that's nice. it. I love yeah. it. Yeah. So. 
to uh, to transition us into the the painting talk here, uh, just just to get into a little bit of how I discovered your uh, your your stream and your YouTube videos. Yep, I was following people on Instagram. Um, I, I've been painting for just over two years now. It'll, I think it'll be three in October. Um, and I've gotten really into putting my stuff on Instagram, and and that's kind of my primary social network outside of doing the show. Right. And I started following someone who was doing the comic style painting, and I've recently backed or had recently backed the uh, Batman the Animated Series IDW game. Yes. And I wanted to kind of switch up my style for when those minis come in because I want them to look like I remember the cartoons looking. Right. And so I was talking to this person. I said, you know, how do you kind of get that look? What, What techniques do you use? And she said... I'm flattered that you're asking me. I'm the wrong person to ask. You need to watch <laughs> Epic Duck on YouTube. And I was just like, I'd never heard of Epic Duck. And so I go on, I watch your stuff. And I was watching you paint, uh, like, uh, I think the first video I watched was uh, Crisis Protocol Venom. Okay. Oh, I love that piece. Mm-hmm. That, yeah. That really is an amazing piece. You, you do that is one of my favorite all-time pieces, yeah. Anyway, sorry. I didn't mean- <laughs> oh no. That I mean that's the story. That's that's how I found your yeah, your yeah. content. But I just kind of holding forth on that piece a little bit. I am absolutely a child of that Spider-Man cartoon from the 90s. And so seeing you put the red and blue on him, that was yeah. really cool cuz that's something that's a little bit lost to time almost. A lot of people kind of forget yes. that happened, but it's cool yeah. looking. It is, yeah. Yeah, it's funny how many people I like after I painted it, I had to explain why I painted it that way <laughs> to people. It's like, well, where's the red light coming from? Like, no, there's no red light. I'm like, yeah. what well, about the blue light? I'm like, that's not a light either. Like, that's just how the nineties worked, okay? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was it was he's oily, he's <laughs> alien, and he's a dark reflection of Spider Man. That's the red and blue. Exactly. I think it was a way to make him look like he has sort of like a like a symbiote like like a oil slick kind of feel to him Mm -hmm. without any expense on the animators part to make it get there. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Cause going back and watching those shows, you can tell the points where they were like cutting costs, especially on on that one and on the X-Men series as well. Oh yeah. Yes. (laughs) So yeah. One of the techniques that flummoxes so many people when they're painting is the eyes. And this is where I really have to give you props because I struggled with eyes for the longest time until I saw the way that you do them when you do the comic style minis, uh, where you, you paint the, the eyes big and then you do the, the straight up and yep. down line and then you kind of shade in with the brown. I'd never even thought to do that because... I don't know, it just never occurred to me, but the effect that it, you know, it makes the eyes look deeper set like eyes actually Mm -hmm. are. It simulates the eyelashes, like you said in one of your videos. It really is a brilliant technique. Did you, did someone else show you that? Did you stumble upon that yourself? Like, how, where'd that come from? It's a little bit of a blend. Um, Reaper Minis on their site, they used to have like a blog of painting techniques back in like 2009, 2010. Mm-hmm. and they had a quick little how-to on how to paint eyes, and it was literally like they took just a blank model, painted like this much of the face white, and then, you know, threw the pupil in, and then just framed in the eye with like a dark brown, and then then paint everything else. Mm-hmm. And 
it was that's what started me on sort of like at least trying to improve how I painted eyes. Because before that, the eyes were always the very last thing I did. Mm-hmm. And they were always like the most stressful thing you did because it's like, you know, you paint everything else, you get all the skin tones laid down, you paint all the armor, blah, 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 blah. And then you've got this one tiny little detail left. And it's the detail that eyes are the thing that like, if you get them wrong, people can tell you got them wrong. Yeah. You know, um, you can mess up almost anything else on a model and people won't notice the way they all notice messed up eyes. And that's just part of being human. We look at facial expressions and we can tell when one eye is doing, you know, veering off to the side or something. And so I started just that, that process of start the eyes white, then rough in the straight line for the pupil. The reason I do the straight line through the pupil is that by the time you framed in the whole eye, you can't tell it's a straight line anymore, but it also really helps you, make sure they're looking the same direction because it's painting a straight line with a paintbrush is really, really easy. Painting a little tiny circle is insanely hard. Mm-hmm. And so if you're trying to paint a tiny round pupil, you're probably going to have one be a different size than the other. It's just almost inevitable, but it's pretty easy to make two fairly consistent straight lines with the same paintbrush. Mm-hmm. And so it was just, it became a way to kind of calibrate the size of the pupil and the one other thing that it really builds on, um, it's one thing I talk about a lot, is when you're trying to do any sort of like freehand detail, there's sort of like, your paintbrush has like a minimum size thing it can do. Like if you've got, a, you know, a paintbrush can maybe make a stripe like this big. And if you need to make something half that size, what you do is you then have to move halfway over and cover it with a different color. And that's really what we're doing there is, you know, that eye that you end up with is probably a smaller detail than you could have painted if you just tried to put in like the white and the pupil. Yeah. Because... You just, you know, when you're framing it in, you take, you know, that dark brown or your black or whatever it is, you've decided sort of like your eye outline color. As you kind of move closer and closer to like compacting that eye in with it, you're making a smaller detail than you could have actually made with just straight up, you know, just two little white dots or a white dot, a black dot, and a white dot, whatever. Um, Anytime you can, you can always refine work by painting over it with other work. And I think a lot of people are actually kind of, that's a concept I think some people are sort of afraid of. They're not necessarily, you know, the idea of like layering paint on top of paint. I think there's some sort of things that come out of mini painting um, that are like universally bad advice, but they're also like universally given advice. (laughs) Um, One of them is, this is a little bit of a tangent, sorry. Um, But I think almost every new painter learns to dry brush. And then is told by someone they should stop dry brushing. Um, Now, this was more common probably about 10 years ago. I think it's come kind of full circle again. And there's some really great artists that are doing amazing things with dry brushing. So it's kind of got a little bit of a spotlight again. But there was a while when I first started painting. I don't even remember who taught me this. But someone told me dry brushing is the first thing you should learn and the first thing you should forget. And I stuck with that as a mantra for like six or seven years. And I would only ever bust out dry brushing if I was doing something with like fur or chain mail, something with like a lot of texture where it's just nothing else made sense to do. Mm -hmm. And then I saw what some other people were doing with dry brushing and just sort of, you know, rethought my own sort of misconception on it. And I don't even remember, like I say, someone else, that was advice I got from someone. And I just, it was someone I respected at the time. And I just kind of took it to heart, then realized later it was really, really bad advice. And it probably came to my painting for six or seven years. Mm -hmm. 
Um, but the idea of when well, just, I guess I went on such a tangent here. I forgot to come back to the original idea. Um, that, that in miniature painting, painting, on layer. Yeah. yeah. In miniature painting. Yeah. We, um, there's a fear that if you paint too many layers on something, you're going to just start to lose all the detail of the model. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have to really have thick paint for that to be a problem. I mean, most hobby paint is already pre-thinned. I mean, it's not like it's, you know, it's a very, very thin material to begin with. As long as you have a damp brush, um, you're probably never in danger of adding so much paint to your model that you lose the model in the paint, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but it's one of those things that I think maybe new painters do. They just like they jam their brush in the pot and they just smear it on the model. And I mean, yeah, that's going to cause you a problem. But once you've got past that sort of like kindergarten stage of painting, it's almost a non-issue. Yeah. And but it's one thing I think that the idea that it's an issue holds people back from doing this sort of building layers of color to get finer and finer details or you know more precise details. Mm-hmm. Um, and that sort of building layers is how I really approach things like eyes or even other you know like freehanding. Like there was um um. To remember a piece here. There was a, I can't remember which miniature it was, but I basically had managed. They had like a big wristwatch on. And I actually managed to write like the number twelve across the wristwatch, like one two zero zero. And it was done by just like I laid out just like colored blocks, and then slowly just brought in like line work to hide parts of the blocks. Gotcha. I was like, I'm not going to sit there and actually try and draw a two. I just I drew a box and then like ticked out a part and ticked out a part, you know, um, because that's the level of brush control that I could manage at the time. <laughs> You know, there are other painters that definitely could come in and paint a little too, but that wasn't me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, I recently uh, tried to, I was trying to draw the medical staff on the side of a med kit okay. in a, a painting or a project that will remain secret for now because it's a birthday gift for, for uh, someone. But the end result that I had was just this white blob and I ended up just painting over it, but Maybe with a detail like that, I could do like a white square and and paint away at it. That's that's definitely something to to remember for the future. Yeah. That because I just I never even thought to approach the tiny details in that way, with the exception of the eyes. Having seen that that video right. that you did, yeah, that's often when I'm looking at doing any kind of freehanding. Like especially the, the common one is like Space Marine like shoulder pads. Yeah is looking at their like their chapter symbol and kind of figure out what like the basic geometric shape is and then how you can kind of just throw that down and then sort of like chip away at it. Mm. Because it's a lot easier than trying to get it, you know, the perfect shape the first time. Yeah. You know, if you come in there and be like, I'm going to paint a salamander and you want to, you know, outline the nose and outline the eye and then get all these little like frills in the back of the head, like you're probably going to get that wrong. But if you go, okay, that's actually like half a sphere and I notch this out and then I notch this out. Mm you're going to get a more consistent kind of result and you're going to be able to reproduce a little bit easier. Mm. So really just freehanding, especially simple, right? Space Marine chapters, symbols, the great thing about them is they're just, you know, they're usually like one color and done they're, It's usually like, you know, black on white or white on red or something. Mm-hmm. Um, with those, it's really, really easy. Those sort of like one color symbols to just break it down into a process of like smaller and smaller geometric details. And then you just, 
you'll find the point where like you just need to stop because like this is the smallest thing I can do. <laughs> yeah. Um yeah, and so you sort of reach a a level where you know, this is your interpretation of the chapter symbol as your ability dictates your ability to paint it and that's that's fine. The the ultimate goal in miniature painting is having something that looks decent on the table and you enjoyed the process hopefully. Yeah. You know, that's um and the other thing to keep in mind, and this is, I'm so guilty of this myself, is when I'm painting, I'm painting six inches away from my face all the time, right? Like, I've got my shoulder-mounted camera, so I'm sitting here painting like this, and the camera's, like, right here, like, you know. And so I'm looking at a model six inches away. My audience is looking at the model six inches away. That's not how you experience them in the real world. Right. You know, um, even in, like, a smaller setting, like an RPG, for example, you're still probably two feet away from your models most of the time. You know, like, you're sitting around the dining room table, they're on the map in the middle of the dining room table. It's like, the fact that, like, you maybe have a couple lines that are a little bit squiggly or off-center or something, doesn't matter when it's, you know, at arm's length. Right. And that's one thing it's really, really important, I think, to do, is when you're painting, is just, every once in a while, just take what you're working on, and look at it like this. And if it looks okay, then just stop worrying about it. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Um, it's really easy to get caught up on how things look like at the end of your nose. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Now, one thing, uh, speaking both of comic style painting and then also mistakes that beginners kind of learn when mm -hmm. they're, they're starting. One thing that comic style painting does not have that so many painters rely so heavily on is washing. Yeah, it's, it's something that's <laughs> I, I've yeah. been guilty of actually passing this on to people that I've kind of shown some of what I know to. I, I say stuff like the wash will help you cover up some of those weak spots. But with a comic style mini, you're not washing it at all. You're you're highlighting. Um, do, do you think that's kind of a, a scary thing for people to start doing uh, when they begin with, with this particular style? I think it can be. Um, the one thing, it, one, so I've got like sort of like as little as like mantras I use when I'm paint, comic style painting. Mm -hmm. And the one thing I always tell myself is when in doubt, black it out. Yep. Um, so with comic style painting, we, of course, we rely really, really heavily on using black ink. And I'm actually using a black artist ink. I'm using either Higgins Black Magic or Dale Rowney. And they're actually meant for like comic book artists working on paper, but they happen to work really, really well on miniatures too. Mm. And the reason I use them instead of a paint is they flow a lot nicer and they are a very, very true black. They're just, they look most black hobby paint is actually like a very dark blue or a dark purple. And it's just so dark. We don't really notice it. Mm. Um, whereas black ink is black, like capital B black. Um, so, what because we're taking our inspiration from comic books and personally so when i say comic books the problem with that is of course that like there's a million different approaches to comic books because there's that many different comic book artists yeah so i kind of look at like the 90s and earlier back when there everything was kind of more big flat colors and a lot of yeah. black ink right mm -hmm. um because since then you know digital inking and you know, the comic book industry has gotten a lot more elaborate and sophisticated and the level of art has jumped significantly. Um, partly because digital inking, digital coloring 
gives you so many more tools than you'd have on, you know, when you're literally coloring with your Copic markers on some paper. Mm -hmm. um, but when you look at older comics, they relied on black ink to set a lot of like the scene and the feel of a piece. Mm -hmm. um, and so I bring that into my miniature painting. So what that lets you do in comics, it was really common where, you know, you might have sort of like Captain America holding his shield and, you know, his shield's going to be like super, super bright and vibrant. And then his forearm's going to be vibrant, but then his chest is going to be almost black because you want to make sure people see the shield and the forearm. Mm -hmm. And so like, this is just going to be like a black, like swath of ink across here. And so we can bring that into our painting and be like, you know what? I want you to see the shield. So two thirds of the model behind it is just going to be covered in black ink. and I don't have to paint it. Yep. And that's one of those things that also coming back to it helps you with that table read. It helps that model stand out across the table. Cause when you look at it, suddenly now you're only seeing Captain America's shield. You're not seeing his shield and his chest and like all the adjoining details. We've decided this is a focal point. This is the thing you're going to see. And the things behind it, exist to make you see it more right yep um and so that's sort of the the replacement in comic style painting for washes is just throw crap tons of black ink at the parts you don't want to deal with <laughs> mm -hmm. um and it's the same thing where anytime i've got a character with sort of like a bit of like a wide-legged stance the entire like inside surface of both legs like up to about halfway around i just paint black and that's so that when you're looking at the model in profile you've got you know, like they're standing like this. When you look at them sideways, you see the side of this leg and then black with like maybe a little tiny edge of this leg showing. Yeah. And that's exactly how it would be drawn in a comic book, right? You would mm -hmm. see the leg facing the viewer and the one in the background is a shadow so that the one in the foreground is more dominant and it might have just an outline around it. And it's amazing how well you can simulate that by just filling sort of like the inside of the model with black, like anything that's kind of facing away from the, that outer surface. So like between the legs, anything on the under half of the model. Um, I do that with arms too, you know, characters hold an arm like this and I'll just be black right here. Like I won't paint the bottom half of the arm. Mm -hmm. Right. And what that does is when you're looking at the model from above, you looks like there is an outline around the arm and it makes it look like it's drawn in place, mm -hmm. but it's also just that much more stuff. You don't have to worry about painting. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and, and barely anyone is going to pick up your model, turn it upside down, and go, hmm, you didn't paint the underside here. Right. It's like, that's not how you're... Because that's the thing is, I think when we're painting, too, we're like, we're constantly, you know, we're painting, we're flipping them up. Like, oh, yeah, I got to paint under his nose. And you're like, oh, I didn't paint underneath the sword here. And we're looking at a model at an angle that you will never look at it at again. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. It's like, on the table, it's horizontal or above. Like, you're never looking at the bottom of a model that's on a table. It just doesn't happen unless you've tipped it over and then shame on you, <laughs> you know? Um, I think what's funny is going back. It's weird. Just going back maybe like 10 years ago when I played a lot of Warhammer 40 K, it was really common when a model got knocked out to like, especially I used to play Necrons. And so of course Necrons have this, it was called We'll Be Back at the time. They've decided to be less little, you know, Schwarzenegger about it and call it animation protocols instead, or reanimation protocols. And so, but basically, you would like tip the models over to indicate that they were dead, but may have the, you know, capability of returning. Mm -hmm. And it's really faux pas now to tip models over because we finally realized as a community that's how the paint chips off. Yeah. <laughs> 
So it's like, no, you put a little marker beside them that says they're dead instead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's that's why you do the clear code at the end, but also just don't do that. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but yeah, anyway, so don't tip your models over. Yeah. That, that's that's the lesson. <laughs> so in in preparing a preparing a model for the the comic style painting do you primarily use like the zenithal light source or or how do you how do you prime them so i've basically got two completely distinct approaches to comic style painting and so it gives me two different answers um one style what i do most often what you've probably seen in most of my video work is where i just lay down all these really really bright colors and then i put the black ink on top of that yeah and so for that the primer doesn't matter too much, except that I try to stay away from, like, dark primers, mm -hmm. with the exception of pieces like Venom. Like, he was going to be pure black on 80% of them, so I just started with, you know, a rattle can of black paint and started there. Like, that was a very specific kind of project. But for the most part, I just make sure it's a brighter um, primer. And I do Zenithal priming, not because it works into my painting workflow, but because it shows up really well on camera. Yeah. Um. Basically, if you've got, you know, so what I try to do is instead of doing like, you know, black on the bottom, white on top, I do sort of gray and white because I do want that sort of lighter tone to start with because it's easier to build light colors on light primer as opposed to trying to build light colors on dark primer. Yeah. Anyone that's tried to paint yellow paint over a black primer has just knows exactly what that's like. <laughs> yeah. Um. So the closer you can start to white, the better. Now, the other approach I have is where I start with a pure white mini. So not only do I prime it white, but then I'll go back in with white ink and an airbrush and go over it because white ink is just that much whiter than white hobby paint is. It's yeah. like the reciprocal of, you know, black ink, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so what I do is I end up with this just like absolutely crisp, pure white model that unfortunately just kind of looks glow in the dark on camera. <laughs> it's not great for camera work. But then what I do is I lay in all the black ink before I color. And so I started doing this. I was watching some comic book artists work. And of course, that's how comic books are drawn, right? You yeah. you start with a pencil sketch, which is kind of, you know, the analog of just having a miniature where like the miniature is already basically like a drawing you have to follow. Like no amount of painting will turn a space marine into, you know, a chibi werewolf. Like it's just not going to happen. Yeah, It's a space marine. It's going to be a space marine. You're done. You don't have a say in that matter. Um, so it's sort of like you're drawing, you're starting with. And so the second step in preparing a comic is, of course, inking, where you take that, you know, rough sketch and you draw in all of your detail and nothing but black ink. And then the final step is when a comic goes off to a colorist. And so I wanted to try and replicate that in painting. And so I started with this pure white miniature and I did nothing but the black ink work on top of that. And so I end up with this, like, pure black and white miniature no shades of gray just literally black and just white mm -hmm. and then from there i brought in all my color using really thin glazes so typically i'm using these days i'm using contrast paint for that if i paint in that style because contrast paint if you're not familiar with contrast paint it's basically like having 36 colors of agrax earth shade huh. it's um you, they're meant to go on a model and give you like a full range of shading, but if you also just put them on really, really thin, all they do is tint a surface without really affecting the like the the saturation value of it. Yeah. Um, 
So what you can do then is you can take those and thin them down a little bit and just glaze them over this black and white miniature. And they don't have enough pigment to really affect the black, but they absolutely just instantly change the color of the white. And so it kind of let me reproduce that comic workflow of I've got a drawing, I've got an inked drawing, now I've got a colored drawing. And what it does, though, is because of that workflow, the colors are very, very flat because it's just a thin glaze over, you know, pure white. And what it gave me was, and it was unintentional the first time I did it, I just thought I wanted to just try and, you know, paint my miniatures the way comic book artist works was just like what went through my head. What I got was something that looked really, really Jack Kirby. You know, it was it was very reminiscent of like a 1960s, 1970s vibe because it's really punchy colors, but with no shading whatsoever. Just like it felt like a four color comic. Yeah. And so it's really cool in that it can achieve that. It's not something I do all the time because it also feels very limiting because of that. You know, mm -hmm. it's. There's only certain colors that work well with it. And it's um, like the browns, for example, just seem to still have too much pigment to like give you that really smooth sort of solid block of one color. So it's just like it works well with reds and teals and greens and some yellows. And that's about it. So it really does play into sort of that classic four color hero. Hmm. But not every miniature is really suitable for that. Yeah. So I guess two different answers is I, you know, <laughs> it's color than ink or ink than color. And they give you completely different results. Like they look nothing alike. Yeah, definitely. Cause I, I mean, for my painting and I, I don't, I have only ever attempted anything resembling comic style once, and that's when, and this this never works when I do this on the show, just because <laughs> of the way I have it set up. The only time I've tried it was when I did Marv from Sin City. Okay. I did him in black and white with the red, because it's Sin City and you have to. Yes, yeah. I, I can send you pictures off, offline afterwards. Yeah, for sure. It's not the greatest work I've ever done, but I love it because Sin City is like my 1B favorite movie. And I have minis from my 1A favorite movie here as well, that being Tombstone. Oh, nice. Yeah. Knuckle Duster Miniatures does a whole Tombstone line. It's yes, great. I, I love yep. those. I was so excited when I found that out. But, <laughs> you know, I, I just started doing Zenithal just to kind of cheat the way that people, you know, talk about Zenithal. It's like, it does your highlights for you. And yeah, it does. But it can. Yeah. It also depends on you know how opaque the paints are you're using on top of it. It's really easy to just like lose your Xenophil with a really opaque paint. So yeah. it's you have to really be cognizant like if you're trying to use Xenophil as sort of like a tool to assist your painting, you have to be aware of what you're putting on top of it. Mm. Otherwise there's never a reason not to do Xenophil priming though, because at the worst case scenario, it just makes the model easier to look at. Um, the number of times Xenophil Priming has helped me find just like a little pouch that's like tucked under a model's arm or something that I just didn't know was there mm -hmm. makes it worth it. Definitely. So yeah, so, even if it has nothing to do with how you want to paint, just do it anyway. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. 
and it's it's not a hard thing to do. It's it's pretty easy to learn. If any of you out there have have not heard about Zenithal priming, it's really you you just need two colors. Some people do it with three. Yeah, you can do it with rattle cans. You don't even need yeah. to have an airbrush. It's you know, take your model, spray the whole thing black or dark gray, or it doesn't even have to be black and white. Like you can do Zenithal priming with like purple and yellow if you wanted to. It doesn't matter. It has to be a dark color and a light color, and that's really it. Yeah. Um, black and white is the most common because then you know it's neutral as to what you do next. Mm-hmm. But you know, if you've got, if you're painting, you know, a salamander's army for 40k, and you've got a can of dark green paint and a can of light green paint, you can do 80 percent of your work with two rattle cans. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> and when and all it is is you take the model. And you spray it black all over, just completely black. Make sure you didn't miss anything. And then you just take your white and you hold the model. I'm just trying to make sure the camera's actually straight. Yeah, there we yeah. go. Um, so at about a three quarter angle and you just rotate the model, spray it there and then spray it one more time straight from above. Mm-hmm. And that's it. Yeah. And what that does is that you, know, you can see on this guy, I'm not sure how well it's going to show, but it's like it's black underneath. It's white on top, like a very, very different color. And what happens is from the side, that gradation of the colors catches every single detail. So just it makes the model easier to look at. Yeah. Um, yeah and the and that guides t- your painting. Yeah. The only time that I've done Zenithal, um, not, you know, with the, the 45 degree angle, I did one uh, overhead to simulate. It's, it's like a Noir detective and I haven't painted this guy yet, but I did one straight overhead to simulate a street light. There you go. Yeah, I'm hoping I have the skill to actually pull off that that OSL because my first attempt at OSL was not great. It wasn't terrible, but it, I don't have an airbrush, so right, right. It can be trickier without an airbrush for sure. It's mm-hmm. uh, depends a lot. Of, actually, that's actually one of the things that works really neat in comic style is so. Just going a quick little tangent. The cool thing about comic style painting is the depth of resource material I have to look at, or the depth of reference material. Because if you're just doing standard painting and you want to learn how to paint, you know, a corn berserker, your reference material is limited to everyone else that's painted a corn berserker. Mm-hmm. When you want to learn how to paint random comic dude in purple armor, like you've got Lex Luthor, you've got Thanos, you've got Galactus, and then that's just the three off the top of my head. There's probably a hundred more mm-hmm. across like 70 years of comics at this point. Like, so you just have such a deep well of reference material to pull from. And so what happens with that is like when people ask me, well, how do I paint, you know, OSL in comic style? I say, I don't know, go look at some Iron Man comics, go look at some Green Lantern comics, see... Find an image where the thing you want to glow is like you need to do a glowing fist. Okay, go read Iron Fist comics. You know, yeah. <laughs> um, find a panel where you like what they're doing and break down the colors they're using. Like, is the fist white? Is the fist yellow? You know, is it yellow transitioning to orange? Is it yellow transitioning to flesh tones? You know, there's just look at what colors are being used, where they're being used. And the other thing you'll see in comics for OSL, the way OSL works 100% in comics, and this is just the easiest thing, you just don't use black lines. You use colored lines instead. Mm-hmm. So anytime, like, Iron Man's arc reactor is the easiest thing to think about. You know, he's got that blowing... He, 100%, every single frame, he's got a blowing, glowing blue center in the middle of his chest. 
And it doesn't have black lines drawn around it. It has dark blue lines drawn around it. And that's how you know it's glowing because it's just not black anymore. Yeah. <laughs> and it's so simple. And it works. It's great because OSL is one of those things everyone wants to try and do it at some point. And in sort of like, I guess we call normal miniature painting, it can feel really challenging. And in comic style painting, it actually can feel really easy because you're doing really simple blocks of color. All you're doing is subbing out your black lines for like orange lines or something like that. And that's it. You know, it's paint it bright, change your line color, and you're there. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's, um, it's really kind of liberating in that there are things that feel like they should be difficult and suddenly they're not. Definitely. Now, some of the, the stuff that you've been painting recently, there's been a lot of, uh, of crisis protocol stuff that you're doing. And then I just have to ask, because this is the project that kind of brought me to the table. Are you planning on doing any work with uh, the Batman the Animated Series stuff that's coming out in December? I'm undecided right now. I want to, but it's really just going to depend on whether I can justify picking that up in december gotcha. <laughs> december is you know a rough time to be buying a giant box of miniatures yeah absolutely <laughs> and i um I'm... what i have been working through i've got the hellboy board game from mantic i've been working through and filming some of that as i go mm -hmm. and i've been really really cognizant of trying to honor mike magnola's work with it as best i can at least for the heroes it comes with like 70 nazis and like 45 you know um I want to say deep ones, but not deep ones. Um, the Innsmouth people, though. You know, yeah, it's, um, yeah. I can't think of them either now. Yeah, we know what I'm talking about. People that are half fish. <laughs> yeah. Um, so those I just like threw really quick colors on because they're Nazis. You punch them in the face, you take them off the table. Like They don't need to hang around and look pretty. <laughs> but, you know, Hellboy, Abe Sapien, Lib Liz Sherman, like those ones I'm putting very specific amounts of detail into to... Like I'm pulling up 10 or 15 panels from different stuff Mike's done and then, you know, really breaking down how I want to paint the model to honor his work as closely as I can. Mm -hmm. And it's very cool because it's got a very different style from how I normally even paint comic style because he does not do any sort of cross hatching for shading. He doesn't do shading really at all. You know, it's solid blocks of like geometric shapes instead. Mm-hmm. And so it's just been really fun bringing that to miniatures because it's just so distinct from anything else I've ever done. And yet it's still comic style, right? And that's yeah. what I love about comic style painting too, is that it's not one thing. Mm -hmm. You know, there's, there's as many approaches to it as there have been comic book artists yeah. and no one is a wrong answer. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're trying to paint uh, John Romita Jr. style, though, uh, good luck to you. <laughs> yeah. Hatch, 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 hatch. Some of you who I... don't read comics are now very confused. Just, just look at it. I like Jr. Jr. A lot of people. He's very polarizing. Just, just look it up. I, I can't describe it. Do you have any particular strong feelings one way or the other about John Romita Jr.? I don't know. I actually have to pull up here one sec. I'm, I remember the name, but I can't remember his art. Mm -hmm. He did 
I mean, he was most famous for doing uh, a big run on Daredevil in the 80s. And then he did a lot of good X-Men work and a lot of good Spider-Man work around that same time. Uh, Some people think that his last work of quality was done in the 90s. I think some of the stuff he does now even still is fine. Uh, He also did Kick-Ass. So Okay. Yeah. But it'd be very hard to replicate on a miniature. Some of his earlier stuff, I'm just looking now, like there's some that definitely fits into that almost like four color kind of hero stuff way back when, but yeah, when he first started, he was, he was drawing like his dad. Yeah. I could see though the, yeah, the line work. So this is the kind of thing I think would work really well in like either doing display painting or doing like busts and that kind of thing. Yeah. Where you've got a little more surface to work with, but yeah, I could definitely see this being, um, You'd pick and choose elements of if you wanted to like really say like bring his Spider-Man work into like Marvel Crisis Protocol. Hmm. What you would probably do is take that hatching and boil it down to tones instead, right? I don't think I would even try to emulate that because it's just it's so much of it and it's so fine. Hmm. Yeah, it's um, you can sort of cheat and sort of adapt people's visual language into something that works on a miniature. Hmm. The other thing is, too, you're taking something that, you know, started as, like, a nine-inch piece of paper and you're boiling it down to a one-inch plastic dude. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got to lose 90% of your detail to do that. <laughs> Absolutely. So it's, uh, you know, there there are, are concessions to be made. <laughs> and if I can just hold forth on, on Crisis Protocol here for a second, because this is of something... Course. It's bothered me about a lot of kind of the licensed stuff coming out of Marvel right now. I really want to buy into Crisis Protocol, but there's not enough of the characters that I really want or care about in it. I'd love to paint Captain America and Spider-Man and the Hulk, but I want Daredevil and I want the Punisher, and I know they're never going to get in. And it's it's keeping um, me from coming in. I think the Punisher's confirmed. So one thing they've said, and they've kind of used their own game as its own source of leaks, is that any character that appears on a ability card <laughs> will eventually be present in a model. Gotcha. And so I think Punisher is basically confirmed because I'm pretty sure he's on one of the cat stat cards or on one of the uh, ability cards. Um, they just recently, last week, leaked that they'll be doing X-Men. Gotcha. Okay. So, I mean, that that's going to just open up basically everything they haven't done yet. Yeah. You know? They'll probably have to do a whole separate mega box for the X-Men. If they're, if they're I doing think it what's right. going to happen... So, I mean, Atomic Mass Games is, you know, through what Asmodee is affiliated with Fantasy Flight Games, more or less, right? Yeah. Um, that whole incestuous brotherhood of gaming that's over there um (laughs) it's hard to describe without using words like that because it's just sort of like it's a whole lot of companies that are really one company that aren't one company anyway um with call it the xbox yeah they're using (laughs) a lot of the same sort of they're building on kind of the success of what is star wars legion and not that like they have the same player base or even the same game but they actually use the same measuring widgets. That's what's kind of funny about it. They both have the same little, like, those little bendy sticks that they use yeah. come from 
X-Men or uh, from um, Star Wars Legion. But Star Wars Legion started with, you know, was Rebels versus Stormtroopers for like the entire first year. Yep. And then their sort of like season two box set was droids versus clones. And I think that's exactly what Marvel Grace Protocol is going to do. So the first one was, you know, kind of MCU adjacent characters, right? It was, mm-hmm. you know, Black Widow, Captain America, Spider-Man, and then some random people. Like, no one would even really know who Crossbones is without the MCU, right? Like, right. the average person has never really encountered Crossbones in a comic. Because the thing is, I mean, the number of people that consume comic content... The people who like, you know, the shows do billions of dollars in the box office and then the comics struggle to sell 50,000 issues, right? Like the yeah. people who experience comic book heroes are much bigger than the people who experience comic books. So, you know, a one-off character like Crossbones, yeah, maybe he's got like a 20-year history, but one-tenth of the people that know of Captain America know of Crossbones until he shows up in the MCU. Mm-hmm. So for him to be a starter set character was like kind of weird, but... yeah. Um, anyway, sorry, I was going on a tangent there. The the next box set, I almost guarantee, is going to be X-Men versus the Brotherhood. Because mm-hmm. that's sort of the, the other really big pairing they have that they can kind of go forward with. That yeah. they've done nothing with yet, right? Mm-hmm. You know, everything else they've sort of... You know, all the Asgardians are basically present already. They can't really do much more with Guardians of the Galaxy. Um, the Spider-Verse is pretty shallow at this point. Like, they've... I mean, there's... 100 different Spider-Man, but they're all Peter Parker, so you can't just keep visiting that well over and over and over again, back-to-back anyway. Yeah. Um, you know, the only other couple Spider-Man that exists, like Miles Morales, has got a miniature now, so, that, like I say, that well's kind of running dry pretty quickly. Yeah. So, the place they have to go next is really X-Men and Brotherhood, and then probably we'll see Fantastic Four at some point, but Fantastic Four is not going to be a starter set thing, because I don't think yeah. it's got the... I think Sony ruined that. <laughs> they'll, they'll probably do it as like two expansions with yeah. one is the Fantastic Four and then the other one is Doctor Doom, Silver Surfer, Galactus. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it'll be it'll be half of a season's worth of boxes. Yeah. But, <laughs> but um, no, if they did uh, Daredevil, Punisher, Moon Knight, I'd buy everything. I would... <laughs> Moon Knight, and actually, I really want Luke Cage and uh, mm-hmm. Iron Fist myself. Yep. Yeah, they, the Defenders... So the cool thing with them, too, is they would... Every single one of those would be, like, a two-point character in the game. And the game lacks for, like, good two-point options. There's a lot of heavy hitters, mm-hmm. and there's not a lot of roster filler. And so being able to just, like, slot, you know, Iron Fist and Daredevil into, a, like, that missing four points you have because you took Hulk and MODOK for some reason, you know? <laughs> Um, be really, really handy just having because there's a like I said, there's a lot of four point characters and there's a lot of more point characters, and being able to swap out any four point character for two two point characters gets a lot more buttons pushed, right? Yeah. And unfortunately, when it comes down to it, it's push buttons the game. Like it's you you go, you know, find the gubbin and either capture the gubbin or maintain contact with the gubbin, whatever it is. Like that's really. That's what miniature gaming comes down to, right? Is there's objectives. You either hold them or take them away or destroy them. That's really, those are the things you can do with objectives on a tabletop game. Really? There's not a lot more than that. And so just literally being able to put extra bodies on the table is helpful. And I think when they get around to doing the defenders in New York, that's going to be really helpful for that because it just lets you 
field a wider roster without upping the point value of the game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then the other thing they need to add in, um, I mean, like you said, with the Spider-Man side of things, uh, it's it's Doc Ock and Venom are the two kind of major Spider-Man villains they've got there, right? Yeah. Am, am I missing anyone there? Um, not top of my head. Um, I mean, they've got Modok already, who was sort of a major Spider-Man villain in one of the animated series. Mm-hmm. You know, because they all borrow from each other at this point now. But yeah. but yeah, there's sort of Spider-Man's big bads are pretty all present at this point. Mm-hmm. I mean, the only thing you need there, um, you need Carnage because you have Venom and then you need the Goblins. And the Goblins already coming out. Uh, Green yeah. Goblin's got a model. Um, Carnage has been on a bunch of card art, so you know he's coming. Yeah. And then, like, yeah, you need the like his rogues gallery, right? You need you need Rhino and Vulture and so on. Craven, yeah. Craven, Electro. Like, you need them at some point, but those are going to be sort of to you know, in a way, they'll almost be like the counterpoint of like the defenders because they're going to yeah. be little two point bad guys, right? Like they're not going to be none of them are. Rhino's a heavy hitter. Rhino will probably be more because he's going to. I mean, he's not like Hulk weight class, but he's not a schlub either. But, mm-hmm. you know, the other ones I think will probably end up coming in a little bit lower, filling that nice low point roster slot because they're kind of one trick. Like, that's the thing is most of Spider-Man's bad guys are one trick ponies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the one that's going to be interesting, I don't know how they're going to handle it, is uh, Wilson Fisk. Oh, yeah. Because he's... I mean, if you go back to, like, the 90s Spider-Man, he was just, like, a living tank. But then you look at, like, you know, the Netflix Daredevil series, and, I mean, yeah, he was kind of strong, but he wasn't, like, there was nothing super cute. He was just, like, his abilities were all tactical as opposed to the fact that, you know, he was just also a beefy bruiser of a guy. Mm-hmm. Um, And so he's going to end up being kind of interesting because he's going to be a support character. He's going to be the character that like makes other people be more violent or more effective. Yeah. But we haven't, they have not mentioned Kingpin coming down the line at any point in time. So who knows when that's going to be. Yeah. And I'm there's 4,000 Marvel characters and they've done like 30 of them. So like we're, we're not even looking at the tip of the iceberg yet. Right. Yeah. And I mean, that's, that's really the thing that I'm thinking. I'm thinking about more uh, just having minis of these characters that I love so much besides the game. I mean, the game is icing on the cake. I've got, you know, friends who are Marvel fans, and I'm going to be like, hey, let's play this Marvel game. Uh, mm-hmm. Too few people showed up. You know, you guys like Marvel. Let's let's try this out for an evening. You know, do, do a couple skirmishes. That's cool. Yep. But then also being able to sit down and paint these characters that I really like and, and really you know, kind of honing in on these details and making them really shine because of how much I love these characters. That's, that's kind of what excites me about that's something like Crisis. 100% Christ. what excites me about it too. Like, honestly, so I paint 20 hours a week and I probably play, you know, an, a game every other week. You know, it's like the ratio is like 40 to one, right? <laughs> um, so for me, the enjoyment comes from painting. If I happen to play a game with it down the line, great. But if not, if I if it looks good on my shelf behind me and I'm happy with it, that's you know that that the, the joy for me comes from painting and then helping other people. Like I say, like I've always been about helping other people paint their miniatures well. And so if I can 
paint something and instruct other people in how I accomplish my painting, then I'm happy if, like, I almost get to, like, gain by proxy, right? Like, there's models out there that are painted because I painted mine. And they're having fun on their games. And, like, I, I take some, some pride in that, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's a weird little indirect way to look at it, I guess, but... <laughs> well... Mike, as we're coming up towards the end of our time here, I like to, you know, give give the guests at the end of the show uh, just some time to promote anything coming up. You know, obviously you've got your YouTube, uh, you do your streams two days a week, you've got your Patreon. Uh, just hold forth anything you want to plug. Uh, the the mic is yours. Okay. Um, yeah, actually, I'm streaming uh, four times a week right now, actually. I do Tuesday, so tomorrow morning, 9 a.m., I'll be up and live. Um, Tuesday, Friday mornings, and then Wednesday and Sunday nights. Um, the other big thing we've got coming up is actually I'm teaching some comic-style classes through Gen Con Online. One of them sold out, but I've got two, one more class that's got four or five seats left, and another one that hopefully they'll publish tomorrow, so I'll have a class available for Sunday as well. So you want something a little bit more one-on-one. -on -one. I kept the class sizes small. It's only it's limited at twelve people a session, so there should be enough time for me to you know give a little direct feedback to everybody. It's a nice long three-hour class, so there's no rush getting anything done. And yeah, so those are going to be the um, August first and August second coming up through GenCon Online. GenCon Online um, entry is free, and then the tickets for the a class is all you have to pay for. Um, but aside from that, if you like what I'm doing, uh, Patreon is always appreciated. You know, just it, I treat it like a tip jar. The one thing I've always kind of stood by is I try to make any teaching I do freely available. I don't have anything paywalled on Patreon. Um, and I think it backfires in a little way in that like some other people have like much more successful patrons than I do, but they're also hoarding their knowledge. And I've always wanted to, like I say, for me, it's about helping other people paint their stuff well. You know, that that comes first. You know, it's just I, I love the joy of helping people enjoy their own painting. And so Patreon for me is literally just a tip jar. It's there to say thank you if you like what I'm doing and you've learned something from it. And yeah, so if you have, please do. <laughs> gotcha. Gotcha. Well, guys, that is going to do it for tonight's edition of uh, Roland Bones. Uh, just a preview of what we've got coming up. Uh, Saturday morning on Danishes and Dragons, uh, John and Joe Page from Project Full Blade are coming back, and we are finally going to talk about biscuits and gravy, that great southern dish that will absolutely destroy your arteries. It's a ton <laughs> of fun. Uh, Mike, uh, since I haven't brought this up, I do a Saturday morning stream at mm -hmm. uh, 9 a.m. Central, which is half dedicated to gaming and half dedicated to breakfast. That's and fantastic. Danishes and dragons, and it's a ton of fun. That's that's great. But I, then, I could get behind that. Yeah, absolutely. But then next Monday on Rolling Bones, uh, this just came up today. I'm actually super excited about this. We've got uh, Spencer Campbell from Gila RPGs coming on to talk about uh, his his most recent Kickstarter campaign. This is ongoing right now, uh, so you can get in on it if you haven't already. Uh, the game's called Slayers. It is um, a tabletop RPG set in a cursed, ever-expanding city where you take on a slayer 
every it's promised that every character is a unique way of uh kind of approaching combat i'm super interested to hear what spencer has up his sleeve for this one but until then guys whether you rolled a one or a 20 i'm so glad that you rolled your bones with me ryan howard and i'll see you next time Hey everyone, Ryan Howard here. Just wanting to remind you all that now, instead of just listening to the podcast every Saturday morning, you can join us live on Monday nights at 8 p.m. Central on Twitch to watch and listen to my interviews each week. I'll also be doing a Saturday morning show called Danishes and Dragons, where I discuss both D&D campaigns and my favorite breakfast foods and coffees. I look forward to seeing each and every one of you, and you can find links to Twitch and YouTube in the show notes page. I hope you enjoy today's episode, and thank you very much for listening.